Hello friends, it's great to be with you on this Tuesday afternoon. I hope you had a good weekend and I hope that you are able to join us today as we continue on through our uh, study of the book of Acts. Uh, we are uh, not quite halfway through, but we will be in chapter 10 today. And as I uh, put a little note out just a few moments ago, well, about an hour or so ago, uh, there are two conversions in the book of Acts that are especially significant. Of course, Acts is a book of conversions, and there are a lot of them talked about. And uh, the last couple of chapters, in chapters 8 and 9, we've uh, talked about some of those. And one of the most significant ones is found in Acts chapter 9, just as we discussed the conversion of Saul of Tarsus, uh, this man who was the point man to try to destroy the church and yet now uh, was a Christian and became a preacher right away and became a missionary and became a church leader and became an apostle of Jesus Christ. Uh, an incredible, incredible story. The man who considered himself, as we saw from 1 Timothy 1, describing himself in his own words as the worst or chief of sinners, uh, was now converted to Christ and had received the salvation that comes only through the blood of the Son of God. Um, and what Paul says in 1 Timothy 1 to Timothy is, hey, if God can save me and forgive me, he can save anybody. And whatever sins you've committed, he can forgive them through Jesus Christ. It's the only hope that every single one of us has, and yet it's assured to us uh, because of the love of God. Um, and so that was chapter 9, and now in chapter 10, we're going to see another significant conversion. In fact, of all those conversions, there are so many of them, uh, beginning with 3,000 added to the church uh, on the first uh, day, and uh, every day more and more added. It's just an incredible, incredible thing. Um, and, and so we get to hear about that amazing story, and that story continued on as thousands more are converted to Christ uh, in the days and weeks and months and years ahead. Uh, in Acts chapter um, 10, we're going to meet another one who is a very significant uh, conversion, probably this one and the Apostle Paul, uh, the two most important uh, conversions uh, because of the uh, significance that was attached to them. So I'm glad we're seeing some folks uh, joining us, including my dear friends Eric and Cindy. Uh, great to see y'all. Uh, we miss you so much and are thankful that you're a part of this and all the others who will be joining us live or who will be watching this later uh, in our archives on our westerwin.com website or in, on, on my Facebook page or our West Irwin Church of Christ Facebook page. Uh, you'll be able to see those and see this at any of those. Uh, Debbie, is good to see you. Glad you're here. I'm sorry today's not your birthday, but at least it wasn't very long ago, so I know you had a good one. Um, it's interesting as we turn to Acts chapter 10, and what we're going to find in Acts chapter 10, just as we did in Acts chapter 8, is the next step of that great call to, uh, to witness and to mission that Jesus gave in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. He said, you will be my witnesses beginning in Jerusalem, to the surrounding areas of Judea and Samaria, and to the very end of the, of the earth. In Acts chapter 8, we see that beginning to be fulfilled as the church is forced out because of the persecution led by the Apostle Paul. Uh, and they reach into Samaria, and Philip does so much incredible, wonderful work uh, there. Uh, and, and, and then 
Paul is converted, Saul of Tarsus is converted in Acts chapter 9, and now here we are in Acts chapter 10, and that next great step, the end of the world, the very end of the world, um, not the end as it, as it no longer exists, but to the far reaches of the globe, uh, the gospel would be spread. And that begins in a very uh, real way in Acts chapter 10 with the conversion uh, of Cornelius. Um, but I want us to start with one of the verses from Acts chapter 9 and verse 31, which describes the scene after uh, the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. Um, in Acts 9 verse 31, it says this, Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace and was strengthened. Living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit, it increased in numbers. So with the conversion of Saul of Tarsus, the church was experiencing a period of peace uh, and growth. People were being added to the church. There was no longer that threat of Saul of Tarsus, who was the, uh, the, the contributing factor to so many being arrested and put in jail and beaten and perhaps even killed. Um, and, and so the church was, was, was going great guns. Definitely not broke. You know the old saying, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Well, it didn't seem to be broke at all now. Uh, the church was growing. The church was at peace. Um, as we had seen earlier, the, the church had a great reputation in the community, uh, except for, of course, in some of those Jewish circles. And now with Saul uh, becoming one of the, the uh, ministers and preachers for the church, uh, there was a time of peace. But wasn't it broke? Remember Jesus said, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the rest of the world. And so now I think the church may be getting a little bit comfortable again, just as it had in Jerusalem before the persecution uh, when Stephen was killed, drew, drew, drove them out. Um, what about future growth? What about future need? What about the needs of lost sinners uh, for the gospel? And, and not just Jewish sinners, but non-Jewish sinners, Gentiles. What, what was God's vision? Well, God's vision was for the whole world. And, it, and when you look at those early messages and you hear Peter talking in Acts 2 and you hear those early sermons from the Apostle Paul as Luke records them, and you read those epistles such as Ephesians and Colossians, you're, you're struck by the fact that God intended to reach to the Gentiles all along. Um, and yet the church wasn't doing that. Wasn't doing that. And, and let's remember how hard it is to reach outside of your comfort zone. How hard it is uh, for even us today to be willing to accept people who are different. Uh, people who are different because of, of the way they were brought up, people who are different because of economics, perhaps, because of geography, perhaps, where they live and where they lived, um, but also because of racial and ethnic differences, how hard it is for us uh, today, knowing everything that we know and how our communities and our nation and even our churches still try to make sense of, of how to be um, a unified people or even a unified uh, church. 
those are big, big questions that still need to be asked, obviously. Um, how would the church be willing to understand what God meant and what Jesus meant as he spoke about reaching out even to the Gentiles, what the prophets meant as they spoke about being a light to the Gentiles, uh, what Jesus meant when he gave that great commission uh, in Acts 1-8, but also in places like Matthew 28, 18 through 20, when he says, go into all the world and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe everything I've commanded you and surely I will be with you always to the very end of the age. What, what did that mean? They, they weren't really doing that. The people that were scattered went everywhere preaching the word, Acts 8 tells us. But once Saul was converted, there was a time of peace. And there was a time of growth. Um, what would it take to get the young church to accept and take on God's vision as, as their own? And and to work to accomplish God's vision. Maybe the early church thought that uh, what would happen as God talked about bringing in the Gentiles is that he would make them Jews. But that's not what Jesus said. Jesus said make, help them to become disciples. Uh, baptize them when they're ready. And then keep teaching them because that's what disciples are. They're learners. It doesn't stop at baptism. And in a way it starts there. Uh, that's when you become a new creature in Christ. That's when uh, you die to sin and are buried with Christ through baptism into death and are raised to live a new life, as Romans 6 puts it. That's when that new life really gets going. Um, they've begun that journey in, in learning about the Lord and learning about sin and learning about the gospel. Uh, and now they accept it and have their sins washed away in baptism, as Ananias told Saul of Tarsus, as we read last week uh, in Acts 9 and in Acts 22, verse 16. But what about, what about now? What about now? Well, it's going to take some extraordinary things. It's going to take some incredible things. Just as in Acts chapter 2, it took an extraordinary sign, the giving of the Holy Spirit, the apostles speaking uh, incredibly, uh, extraordinarily and miraculously in other languages so that the people would know, the Jews there that were there who were gathered on the day of Pentecost and who had likely been there since Passover, the majority of them, uh, and had seen all those events of that weekend when Jesus died and had heard the stories about how he had been raised from the dead and and had perhaps heard some of those who were eyewitnesses saying, we saw him alive. Now they see what's going on, and 3,000 of them are baptized that very first day. But what about the rest of the world? What about that being a light to the Gentiles? It's going to take something like that. Uh, and God knew that. And so in Acts chapter 10 is the second of two examples of this extraordinary gift of the Holy Spirit. Uh, the Spirit is given the miraculous gifts, as we saw in Acts chapter 8, uh, as I preached and mentioned some this past Sunday uh, in our sermon about the presence of God during a series on the Lord's Prayer. Um, that Those gifts are, are given at the laying on of the apostles' hands. That seems to me to be clearly stated in Acts chapter 8. It's reinforced in places like Acts 19 when we see the Apostle Paul doing that to some new Christians 
in Acts uh, 19 who were from Ephesus. Um, but it's going to take something like what happened on the day of Pentecost for these Jewish Christians to really take seriously what God had said and to understand what he meant. Uh, that he didn't just mean to go out and make non-Jews Jews, but he meant to go out and make everyone, Jew or Gentile, disciples. And it's that extraordinary gift that we get to read about um, in Acts chapter 10. Again, this is only the second time of twice that this will happen. This is the, these are the only two times that we see this kind of outpouring of the Holy Spirit, and it's because it was that kind of an extraordinary gift and sign that had to be seen so that people would know, the people of God would know that this is from God. This is God's uh, will. And it starts with this man in Acts chapter 10 by the name of Cornelius. So, hello to everybody again. It's nice to have Eric and Cindy and Debbie and Larry and Lynn Murphy and Robert and Mary here. It's just uh, great to see you and so many others that will be watching um, uh, this video and this study of Acts chapter 10 and God's vision uh, for uh, the church. That would include everyone of every nation, of every ethnic and racial background. Uh, and that begins right here. In Acts chapter 10, verse 1, at Caesarea, a very significant Roman city, it's a place where Paul would later be uh, taken uh, under guard uh, to protect him from the Jews by the Romans, and then there in Caesarea appear uh, before the governor and later uh, King Agrippa and Bernice, and then from there uh, get on board a ship and be sent off uh, to Rome, having appealed to Caesar. This Cornelius was a Roman officer stationed there uh, at, at Caesarea, this very important city on the east coast of the Mediterranean Sea. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian Regiment. Maybe that meant he uh, was over 100 soldiers. It could also be uh, some other things, but there's, there's certainly indication that a centurion would be a Roman officer over a multitude of soldiers. He and all his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God uh, regularly. He was a God-fearer, and we read about the, the God-fearers in some other places too. He wasn't a Jew. He was a non-Jew, but he worshiped the God of the Jews. He had not taken the steps to actually embrace Judaism, but he was a person who, was, um, uh, who feared the God of the Jews and who sought to worship him. Uh, the Ethiopian official that we read about in Acts chapter 8 had gone the next step. He was uh, no longer just a God-fearer. He, he had taken the steps to become a Jew and had gone to Jerusalem to worship. And that's when, uh, on the way back uh, to Ethiopia, uh, to Africa, he encountered uh, Philip, who was led by the Spirit uh, to go to him. And ultimately, that Ethiopian treasurer, beginning at... Um, Isaiah 53 heard the gospel preached to him and the response of faith and uh, was baptized there on that road at some water that he found and saw and had the chariot stop uh, so that he could be baptized by Philip. Uh, a great, incredible story there at the end of Acts chapter 8. Um, but here, uh, Cornelius hasn't gone as far as that man had done. Uh, he was a God-fearer. He was a worshiper of God. 
uh, but he had not taken the steps to become a Jew. But he prayed. He prayed to God a lot, and he gave. He gave of his means uh, to help uh, support the good works uh, that the Jews were involved in, and perhaps others as well. Verse 3, one day at about three in the afternoon, he had a vision. He distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius. Cornelius stared at him in fear. What is it, Lord? He asked. And I get that in fear part. Yeah, I would have to be brought, you know, smelling salts or something. You know, I would have to be brought back to consciousness. Um, but he, he understands this is an angel. And this is from the Lord. And so he asks, what is it, Lord? The angel answered in verse 4, your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Now send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon, who is called Peter. He is staying with Simon the Tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had gone, Cornelius called two of his servants and a devout soldier who was one of his attendants. He told them everything that had happened and sent them to Joppa. Uh, we, had, we had seen uh, Peter there in Joppa uh, at the end of Acts chapter 9. Uh, the story shifts from the conversion of Saul to some activity and ministry of Peter involving healing a man and also raising a woman from the dead, Dorcas, also called Tabitha. And Peter does that, and that's where the story goes from chapter 9 to chapter 10. Um, and he does that, and now he is staying there uh, with Simon, this man who was a tanner, and obviously a, a Christian, and Simon Peter is there, and, and being involved in ministry, I'm sure, and teaching uh, with the church there uh, in Joppa, and so Cornelius obeys the vision he has seen. He gets a few of his soldiers together, one of his most trusted attendants, uh, and tells them the story of what he had seen and sends them off to obey that teaching, to obey that vision, and to get Simon Peter and bring him back uh, to him there in Caesarea. <clears throat> Whether or not Peter would go with them is a whole other thing <laughs> because Jews didn't associate with non-Jews or Gentiles. They didn't eat with them. They didn't go into their homes. In fact, as you read the Gospel of John, you're struck there at the end, uh, towards the end, when the Jewish leaders are trying to get Pilate to condemn Jesus uh, to be crucified, and they won't even go in his palace because, again, they don't want themselves to become ceremonially unclean. And so it's going to take, again, something, something special. It's going to take extraordinary things just to get this opportunity for these two men to be face-to-face. And that's even before the most extraordinary event uh, will happen after they get together and Peter begins uh, to speak to them and teach them. And so we go from Cornelius's vision to Peter's vision. Cornelius needs to know what he's supposed to do, and so God sends his angel uh, to tell him. But what about Peter? How is Peter going to know that he's supposed to go with these men that come to him who are Gentiles so that they can take him to a Gentile's home. <laughs> well, that requires another vision. In Acts 10, beginning at verse 9, About noon the following day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the roof to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat, and while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw heaven opened and something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. 
It contained all kinds of four-footed animals as well as reptiles and birds, which means there were some that were clean and some that were unclean animals here. Then a voice told him, verse 13, get up, Peter, kill and eat. Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. The voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. Remember, Peter is already hungry, and he's praying, probably uh, devoting himself to God in a very special time of, of meditation and devotion and prayer. And, and he falls into this trance, and he has this vision. And already hungry in this vision, he sees the sheep coming down from heaven with all kinds of animals on it, all kinds of reptiles, birds, a lot of unclean animals. According to the Jewish law, unclean, not to be eaten, not to be eaten. And then a voice, the voice says, get up, Peter, kill and eat. And he says, no, 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 no. I've been kosher all my life. I'm not going to start being unclean now. Uh, I've never had anything unclean. Uh, there's no way I'm going to do that. And then the voice says in verse 15, do not call anything impure that God has made clean. Now, Peter's not going to get it. He's not even going to get it on the first go-round enough to be willing to go see Cornelius. Because scripture, the next verse says in verse 16 of Acts 10, this happened three times and immediately the sheet was taken back to heaven. Verse 17, then while Peter was wondering about the meaning of the vision, he's, he's seen this vision, he's seen it three times. And now he's back awake and he's thinking, what in the world? What could this possibly mean? Still not understanding it. Um, while Peter, verse 17, was wondering about the meaning of the vision, the men sent by Cornelius found out where Simon's house was and stopped at the gate. Not Simon's, Peter's home, uh, but Simon the Tanner. They called out asking if Simon, who was known as Peter, was staying there. Why did they have to call out? Because they wouldn't let him in, probably. Perhaps because they were afraid that these were people that were there to capture Peter and take him to jail. That's possible. But these were Gentiles. These were not Jews. These were Gentile soldiers. And, and they, they were not welcome in that house. Um, but they called out asking if Simon Peter uh, was there. While Peter was still thinking about the vision, remember verse 19, he's still on the roof wondering what this vision meant. The Spirit said to him, Simon, three men are looking for you. So get up and go downstairs. Do not hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. God just has to clearly lay it out step by step uh, for Peter. Um, Peter went down, verse 21, and said to the men, I'm the one you're looking for. Why have you come? The men replied, We have come from Cornelius the centurion. He is a righteous and God-fearing man who is respected by all the Jewish people. That may be, but he was not a Jew. A holy angel told him to ask you to come to his house so that he could hear what you have to say. Then Peter, verse 23, invited the men into the house to be his guests. And I'm sure Simon the Tanner and everyone else there, their mouths dropped to the floor. They couldn't believe it. 
But Peter was getting the message. He still didn't understand the message, but he was beginning to get it. And so he obeyed what God had told him to do, to go down and accept these men uh, because they were being sent to him by God. And so Peter invites the men into the house to be his guests. The next day, Peter started out with them, and some of the believers from Joppa went along. And I, I'm sure they were thinking, wow, I, I got to see where this ends. Some others might have been thinking this may not end well, knowing full well the destruction of the church that, that Saul of Tarsus had gotten going, knowing full well that Stephen had been killed for his faith. And now they're going to go with some Gentile soldiers? This is scary. This is risky. This is risky. But because of Peter's visions, because of what these men said about the vision that Cornelius had, that steered them to that very house to ask for that very man, Simon Peter. Peter went with them, and some of the others went with him as well. Verse 24, the following day he arrived in Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and called together his relatives and close friends. This guy is great. He is great. Just like the jailer from Philippi that we'll read about in Acts 16, uh, when he brings Paul and Silas to his home to clean their wounds and to hear more about this Jesus that they had been singing about while in jail, uh, his whole family gathers together and uh, become uh, Christians that, that very night. Um, Cornelius had called together his relatives and close friends. Verse 25, as Peter entered the house, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet in reverence. But Peter made him get up, stand up, he said, I am only a man myself, the great Simon Peter. Later, the Apostle John, in one of the last scenes of the New Testament, would be on the island of Patmos and would see this incredible, uh, incredible vision of the throne room of God and Jesus the Lamb and this battle that's going on in apocalyptic vision. And the angel that was kind of his guide through all of this um, Peter tries, uh, John tries to worship him, and the angel says, no, 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 there's only one who is worthy of worship, and that is not the apostle John, it is not the apostle Peter, it is not anybody that's living today, it is only Jesus Christ. Uh, all hail the power of Jesus' name. Let angels prostrate, fall, but only before the Lord Jesus Christ. I am only a man, Peter says. I'm just a man like you are, Cornelius. An incredible statement when you think about it for a Jew to say to a non-Jew, a Gentile. Verse 27, while talking with him, Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people. Uh, and I'm sure that got him going to. He said to them, you are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile. And yet there he was. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without raising any objection. May I ask why you sent for me? So Peter is beginning to see, oh, I get that vision about the unclean food. Um, don't call anything unclean that I have made clean. And now here I am with Gentiles. Maybe there's a connection here. Um, and so Peter believes it enough 
to be willing to go with these men. He believes it enough to go into this house of this Gentile and have some degree of fellowship uh, with them and conversation. Um, and so he asked them, okay, why did you send for me? I, I know why I came because of what I saw. Why did you send for me to begin with? Cornelius answered, uh, beginning in verse 30, three days ago, I was in my house praying at this hour at three in the afternoon. Suddenly a man in shining clothes, this angel, stood before me and said, Cornelius, God has heard your prayer and remembered your gifts to the poor. Send a Joppa for Simon, who is called Peter. He is a guest in the home of Simon the Tanner, who lives by the sea. So I sent for you immediately, and it was good of you to come. Now we are all here in the presence of God to listen to everything the Lord has commanded you to tell us. What an incredible, exciting moment. Here is this apostle, Simon Peter, this leader, one of the leaders of the church, uh, still a very Jewish Christian church, uh, no Gentiles, no non-Jews, everyone who has been baptized so far has been a part of the Jewish nation and the Jewish people. And, and that's, I think that's where it was going to stay until this happens. And Peter has his vision uh, responding to Cornelius and his vision. And now Cornelius has shared with Peter what he saw and what he heard and why he sent for Peter. And so Cornelius tells him, okay, we're all here. <laughs> I've got my family. I've got some of my closest friends, people I trust in this situation. We want to hear what you have to tell us because what you have to tell us is what God has commanded you to tell us. And we want to hear it. It's just an incredible, amazing moment. And Peter had already been a part of this once, remember? In Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost, uh, Luke records Peter's sermon on that day. Uh, and he talks about everything that had happened and how Jesus had been killed and how uh, he was the fulfillment of all the Jewish hopes and prophecies according to the Messiah as he lays out for them the scripture in Joel 2 and other passages of scripture. And then uh, they ask him, what do we do? And he tells them in Acts 2 verse 38, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And 3,000 of them are baptized and more and more every day. Scripture says in Acts 2. Um, and as best we can tell, that was probably around 10 years before what it, we're reading about now in Acts chapter 10. Those first 7, 8, 10 years uh, had seen some momentous experiences, some great growth in the church, and then the persecution began. Uh, threats, first of all, uh, to the apostles in Acts 3 and 4, and then more threats in Acts chapter 5, and the flogging and the beatings begin. And then uh, Stephen, in his sermon, uh, one of the seven chosen in Acts 6, is put to death um, at the end of Acts chapter uh, 7, as Saul of Tarsus is there approving of what's going on. And then Saul begins his great persecution in Acts chapter 8. Um, and then Saul himself is converted in Acts chapter 9. And now here we are, 10 years after Jesus' death, 
10 years or so after uh, the beginning of the church, still a Jewish Christian church, uh, still not fulfilling everything that God had called them to fulfill, and maybe they didn't even realize it, but they will after today. Then Peter began to speak in verse 34. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. What a powerful, powerful statement that I still don't think Peter grasps completely. Even though he's saying the words, I'm not sure that he's ready to act on it any more than he already has. Again, Acts 10, verse 34. Then Peter began to speak, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. You know the message God sent to the people of Israel, announcing the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. You know what has happened throughout the province of Judea, beginning in Galilee, after the baptism that John preached, John the Baptist began in Galilee. Jesus began in Galilee, um, preaching about the kingdom that was at hand, the kingdom that was to come, preaching a baptism of repentance, uh, baptizing Jesus, and then Jesus continuing to teach and to preach until he was put to death, as Peter is going to say. These things didn't happen in a vacuum. Again, one of the great evidences that this Christian story is true because it wasn't done in secret. It was done in public. It was done in the most important city that the Jews would ever know, Jerusalem, uh, when Jesus is arrested and when Jesus is tried and when he is crucified and then when he is resurrected just three days later, all in the same city. It's a story that was well known, even to a Roman centurion miles away in a Roman, a very important Roman city, the city of Caesarea. Again, verse 37, you know what has happened throughout the province of Judea, beginning in Galilee, after the baptism that John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, and how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil, because God was with him. What a great description of Jesus in Acts 10, verse 38. He went around doing good. May that be said of all of us. May that be said of everyone who names the name of Jesus. May that be said of every church that, that professes to be followers of Jesus Christ. He went around doing good and doing what he could to heal people. Um, and that is the great description of Jesus. And, and Peter tells Cornelius and those that were gathered there that day, you, you all know this story. Uh, you know this. And then he continues in Acts 10, verse 39. We are witnesses of everything he did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They killed him by hanging him on a cross, but God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. Again, that's the gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Paul would affirm that in 1 Corinthians 15, and, and he would affirm what Peter does here, that there are eyewitnesses to that, that people saw him dead and people saw him alive afterwards, after that third day. Peter says that. We were eyewitnesses of all of this. Um, he was not seen, verse 41, by all the people, but by witnesses whom God had already chosen. 
by us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. Paul gives a, a, a long list of people, including crowds of hundreds of people that Jesus appeared to. Uh, Peter acknowledges here that those chosen ones certainly were ones who saw him, and we realize that's the case because in Acts chapter 1, when they have to replace Judas Iscariot, who betrayed Jesus and who killed himself afterward, um, they require it to be somebody who had been with them from the beginning and who saw Jesus' resurrection, uh, resurrected body himself, and that the one they chose would be Matthias. Uh, verse 42, he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. And it seems like, just like in Acts chapter 2, I think, it seems like Peter is willing to go on, being the good preacher that he is. He's got plenty of stuff left still to go, but the, in Acts 2, he's interrupted. It, the people were cut to the heart, and they say, what, what do we do? They don't wait for Peter to offer the invitation and for somebody to start up with just as I am. They seemingly cut him off and say, what? okay, we get it. We, we believe. What, what do we do now? And the answer again comes back, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Saul of Tarsus, after praying and fasting for three days, according to Acts 9, is told to be baptized and wash his sins away by Ananias in Acts 22, verse 16, as Paul tells that story. Uh, Peter himself says that this is every, that the prophets testified that this is what was to happen, but he hasn't brought himself yet to say, okay, you guys, what are you waiting for? Let's go baptize you. He can't bring himself to say that yet. It takes something extraordinary. It takes something just like what happened to him, to Peter himself and the other apostles in Acts chapter 2. And later, Peter is going to describe it just exactly that way. <clears throat> verse 44, while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. It wasn't the people, Cornelius and his family and friends, who interrupt Peter like it was in Acts 2. The people who were listening uh, interrupt Peter and say, what do we do? In this case, it was God himself. It was the Holy Spirit himself who cuts Peter off to demonstrate to him, this is from God. This is a new day, and it's something extraordinary. It's something that's not going to be like anything you have experienced for 2,000 years since Abram, the father of the Jews, Father Abraham, was first called and was first given that call to be circumcised and to circumcise his son Ishmael, and then when he is born, to circumcise his son Isaac and all of the Jewish males following. It's a new day. Acts 10, verse 44, While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on Gentiles, for they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. Then Peter said, Surely no one can stand in the way of their being baptized with water. They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. 
Then they asked Peter to stay with them for a few days. Nothing like this had ever been seen before. Without becoming Jews, these Gentile believers are baptized into Jesus Christ. Why? Because as Peter says, how can you keep them from being baptized? They've received the Holy Spirit just as we did. And these are the only two times that we see that happen. Once in Acts chapter 2, to denote the, the beginning of the church. And once in Acts chapter 10, to denote that Gentiles, non-Jews, are not required to become Jews, but rather they are required, in, just as the Jews are, to believe the message that they're hearing, to believe in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so Peter says, how can we keep them from being baptized? They've received the Spirit just as we have, significantly worded. Uh, and later, as we'll see in chapter 11, Peter says the same thing to the Jews back in Jerusalem that are Christians that he has to answer to. Uh, Peter says, surely no one can stand in the way of their being baptized, and they are. And then Peter and his party stay there for a few days with these Gentile Christians. But then he has to go back. <laughs> then he has to go back to Judea, back to Jerusalem, back to his friends, back to the other apostles, and tell them what he did. First of all, that he went with a bunch of Gentiles to the home of a Gentile, went in and ate with them and stayed with them but the real story is i baptized them and now they are our brothers not in judaism but our brothers and sisters in christ and so we'll read that part of acts chapter 11 before we end our study today acts 11 verse 1 the apostles and the believers throughout judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. And it was not good news. <laughs> it was scary news. And, and they needed Peter to explain. Verse 2, so when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers criticized him and said, you went into the house of uncircumcised men and ate with them. These, again, these are Jewish Christians and probably some of the leaders, and they go to Peter and they say, what in the world were you thinking? This is against everything our people have believed and practiced since Moses gave the law 1,500 years ago. This is against everything that our people have believed and practiced since God gave Abraham that call 2,000 years ago in Genesis 12 and called him uh, to be circumcised and to have his boys circumcised. And now we have followed this for 2,000 years and you just went into their house and ate with them? And Peter says, well, it, it gets worse, but there's a reason. Verse 4, Peter defends himself by telling the story. And that's what Paul would do when he is asked, to defend himself before Jews and Romans as to why he would be a part of this church that at first he had set out to destroy, he tells the story. And he tells the story by telling his story, and that's what Peter does here. 
That's what we are called to do as well. And so Acts 11, verse 4, starting from the beginning, Peter told them the whole story. And he goes and he tells them everything that we just read in chapter 10. I was in Joppa at the home of Simon the Tanner. I had just raised this woman from the dead. We were having a great old time. I was, I was praying and I had this vision of God releasing this, this sheet with clean and unclean animals on it. Uh, I looked into it, verse 6, and saw four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, reptiles, and birds. And I heard a voice telling me, rise, Peter, kill, and eat. And I said, no way. I've never done that. I'm not going to eat anything that's been, that is unclean. And the voice spoke from heaven, verse 9, don't call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times, he says, and then everything went back up into heaven. And as I was considering this, three men came from Caesarea, and the Spirit told me, verse 12, to have no hesitation about going with them. These six brothers that are there with him now also went with me, and we entered the man's house, this Gentile Roman soldier, officer. He told us how he had seen an angel appear in his house and say, send to Joppa for Simon, who is called Peter. He will bring you a message through which you and your household will be saved. That was how Peter uh, shares what Cornelius told him about his vision. Go send for Peter. He's at the home of Simon the Tanner in the town of Joppa. Send for him. Have him come to you. He's going to tell you and all your household what you must do to be saved. And then verse 15, as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit came on them just as he had come on us at the beginning. Again, very significant that Peter would put it that way. Not in the way that Christians receive the Spirit when they're baptized, as those on the day of Pentecost did, but in the way that, that the apostles received it in Acts chapter 2, in an extraordinary way of being given miraculous gifts of the Spirit, just as they did, and began to speak in tongues. As I began to speak, Acts 11, verse 15, the Holy Spirit came on them as he had come on us at the beginning. Then I remembered what the Lord had said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So if God gave them, verse 17, the same gift he gave us who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to think that I could stand in God's way. Peter tells them this is the fulfillment of what Jesus said would happen. And this is, this is something that God has done. It's not something that I did. It's not something that Cornelius did. It's something that God did. That God's Holy Spirit was given to them just as he was given to us at the very beginning. We would say in Acts chapter 2 on that day of Pentecost. Who was I, Peter says, how could I say no? How could I deny these people the very gift of salvation that God had sent them to hear and to receive? When they heard this, verse 18, they had no further objections and praised God, saying, So then, even to Gentiles, God has granted repentance that leads to life. Interesting biblical belief, biblical faith. Biblical repentance always leads and includes biblical baptism. 
It was that way in Acts 2. It was that way in Acts 8 with the Samaritans. It was that way for Saul of Tarsus in Acts chapter 9. And it was that way with Cornelius and his family and the others who had gathered together in Acts 10 to hear this message from Simon Peter that God had told them to hear, had told them to hear from Simon Peter the apostle. So then even to Gentiles, God has granted repentance that leads to life. And you would think that from here on out, it's a no-brainer. God has accepted Gentiles. We will too. Come, come into the church, those of you, Jew or Gentile, who will believe and repent and confess and be baptized. But it wasn't quite that simple. Remember, there's 2,000 years of history here. And even though there are great, miraculous, extraordinary signs that demonstrate this is from God, it was still hard. It was hard for the Jewish leaders to accept. It was hard even for Peter to accept, as Paul will challenge him on in Galatians chapters 1 and 2. Uh, it was hard for the others to accept. And so we see some things happening from here. In Acts chapter 11, uh, Paul and Barnabas are in Antioch of Syria, this, this very uh, contemporary church in Antioch of Syria on the northeastern uh, corner, a little bit inland from the Mediterranean Sea. Uh, and then in Acts chapters 13 and 14, Paul and Barnabas go on that mission journey and, and start in the synagogues, but then go from there uh, to convert Gentiles just as uh, that church at Antioch of Syria had done with Paul and Barnabas and now sends them out throughout what we would call modern-day Turkey uh, to share the message of God with Jews and Gentiles. And it all gets really nervous for these Jewish Christians who had heard this message. And so in Acts chapter 15, they're, they're, they're called back to Jerusalem again to discuss this. And then in Ephesians, and in Colossians, and in Galatians, Romans 9 through 11, Paul deals with this very same subject. In Romans 12, and 13, and 14, and 15, these issues that come up that, are, that have racial undertones to them, not just theological, but racial as well, as the church has now become one that is multiracial, multiethnic, not just Jews but non-Jews being accepted into the church for the same way and by the same reasons that the Jews are when they hear that message and they come to believe it and they decide that they're going to change their life. They repent. They confess that this is what they truly believe and they are baptized and now they are not asked to become Jews. They are simply made disciples of Jesus Christ through the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. The church was broke. It just didn't know it was broke. It thought everything was going great guns, but it wasn't reaching out the way Jesus had called it to reach out. There was a sense of peace about it. Saul of Tarsus had been converted, and so now the persecution was not as strong. But to fix the church, it was going to have to be sent into a place that would be difficult, that would bring about tension and even conflict, not just with the, the church and 
those who were outside of the church, but with, within the church itself, within fellow believers in Christ. There would be tension, and there would be conflict, and there would be trouble about how you do this. Now that we have people who come from different backgrounds, how do you do this now that they are brothers and sisters in Christ, even though it would make their lives more complicated and more difficult, not less, the church needed to catch the vision of God. And most of all of us are here today as members of God's church because of what we just read about in Acts chapter 10. Because we too are, most of us, are non-Jews, Gentiles, converted into Jesus' church. And so our vision today, is it God's or is it man's? Is it what God wants, which is a worldwide mission of all people, whatever their racial, economic, historical, geographical background is, they, were, they are to receive the same message of Jesus Christ and his death, burial, and resurrection. The same message of the response of faith to believe and to repent, to confess and to be baptized, to begin a new life in Christ. It must include the willingness and drive to reach out to all people of all ethnic and racial backgrounds, all nationalities, all economic situations with the gospel. And so when Peter is called on the carpet by his friends and brothers in Jerusalem, he tells them the story. Here's what Cornelius saw. Here's what I saw. Here's what God's Holy Spirit did. How can we say no when they received the same gifts the way we did at the very beginning. Um, and he'll have to do it again when he gets to Acts uh, 15. After Paul and Barnabas and their amazing work uh, with Jew and Gentiles in what we call Paul's first mission journey, everybody's going to get really nervous about the growth of the church and how we're not asking these Gentiles to become Jews and to accept the law. And so they meet in Acts 15, as we'll see. And there are some who meet there, Jewish Christians, who say these Gentile converts, they need to be circumcised and they need to observe the law. Yeah, let's baptize them. But they need to observe the law of Moses too. And God says, no, no, no. Well, what are the applications for us in our racially charged time uh, with the difficulties that we are seeing? And I, wanna, I, I want us to talk more about that when we get to those passages in Acts chapter 15. But today I just want to close with a few scriptures. First of all, Genesis 1 verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Later on, it in, in Genesis 1, on that sixth day of creation, God created, let us make man, humanity, in our own image. And so in the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. We are created by God, all of us, wherever we come from, whatever we look like, whatever stage of life we're in, whatever race or ethnic background we have, we are created in the image of God, all of us, all of us. In John 3, 16, that very familiar verse, for God so loved the world, all the world, 
that he gave his one and only son so that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. God did that for everyone, everyone in the world, whatever their background, whatever they look like, whatever's in their bank account, or even if they don't have one, whatever part of the world they live in, whatever they have, God loved them and he created them in his image. And now he is calling on them to believe in Jesus Christ. And then this last passage that we read today in Acts 10, verses 34 and 35. Then Peter began to speak. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. That is still true today, that God does not show favoritism, that he accepts people from whatever their background, whatever their ethnic history, whatever their economic situation, whatever part of the globe they live in, God accepts them if they will be willing to fear him, to reverence him, to worship him above all, to do what is right to hear that message of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, to believe it, that gospel, to turn away from their lives of sin. We'll sin afterwards, but that is no longer our purpose. We are on a different path. We've changed. We've repented. We confess that faith in Christ, and we're baptized, just as Saul of Tarsus was, just as Cornelius was these two most extraordinary conversions Saul of Tarsus because of the impact he would have on the church and the world in the first century before his death in the mid to late 60s in the common era and this man Cornelius and his family and his friends non-Jews Gentiles Christians from here we go to Acts 12 and we read about the first uh, apostle killed for the faith. But first we get to hear more about this incredible church in Antioch of Syria and we hear the term Christian for the very first time in Acts chapter 11, verse 26. I'll look forward to sharing that story with you this Thursday at 4 p.m. May God bless you. May God bless our church and our communities. May God bless our world and use us to share this gospel message with those from every nation, from every background, so that we, like our God, will not show favoritism. Amen.